Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conservation Realist. I am, first of all, very sleepy today, but that does not take away from the excitement I feel about sharing this continuation of my conversation with Dr. Jomari Acebes, or Jome, that started in episode two. And this conversation was divided into two episodes because, well, she was the first person I interviewed, and um, I had this vision of episodes that were only 30 to 40 minutes long. I thought that would be nice and approachable, uh, but everyone has had so many interesting things to say, and I am much more long-winded than I ever anticipated in these introductions, so they've been more like an hour long. But um, this one really lent itself nicely to being divided into two episodes because we, we covered two pretty hefty topics, right? The first one being colonial science, uh, and I learned a lot from that. And the second one is a topic that I'm, I'm more directly familiar with, um, but I love. Uh, I don't love that it exists as a problem, but I love delving into it, and that is the human collateral damage in conservation. Uh, and I don't lay claim to that term. Um, I'm sure someone else has written it up nicely somewhere, but it just popped into my head when I was sending Joe a list of topics that I thought we could talk about. And the, the term collateral damage implies that the damage is an aside, right? It's, it's not intended, but it also treats it as kind of negligible in a way. Um, so both the intent, but also in, in how seriously the impact itself is taken. And I'll, I'll kind of frame this um, in a way as, you know, when you're watching an action movie, like, I don't know, like a James Bond film, like, and there's a, a chase scene. And of course, you're looking at the villain and James Bond and the super cool vehicles they're in and the stunts. Um, but you know what I see are like the fruit stalls in the market that are overturned or like people's houses that are damaged, um, cars that are banged into. I'm like, oh my God, was everyone in that car okay? And there's just this, like this trail of destruction behind them. And like me in my head, I'm like, but what about all those people? But as viewers, we're supposed to be keeping our eye on like the shiny motorcycles and, and sports cars and whatever else they throw into those chases and into James Bond and the flashy villain. And <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about what happens a lot of times in conservation. Um, although, of course, it's a lot less dramatic, a lot less exciting. Um, but in the pursuit of what we generally agree are, are, are very good goals, saving species, saving biodiversity, saving natural resources, pursuing these goals often results in negative, generally unintended impacts. Um, but these are impacts that are not out of thin air, right? Like if you gave serious thought to the context in which these conservation interventions are taking place, you probably could anticipate a lot of these impacts, prepare for them, either prevent them or put in you know, meaningful mitigation measures. Unfortunately, I feel like the significance of these impacts is often minimized, right? So we want to keep our eye on the stars of the show, which is the, um, the species that's being saved and, and maybe the, the brave selfless conservationists who are saving them and these communities who get negatively impacted by the the actions involved in trying to save those species um, are treated as kind of uninteresting 
maybe inconvenient bystanders almost. And not only is this wrong from you know a human rights and dignity and equity point of view, it, it also really hurts conservation. It, it's an impractical way to approach conservation because you're going to end up alienating communities who could and should be really powerful partners, if not the leaders in conservation. And then this is something that Dr. Ruth Brennan in the previous episode, episode seven, um, spoke about, I think, really powerfully. So when you alienate communities um, by inflicting harm on them, whether it was purposeful or not, you risk putting into place what I've phrased as counterproductive conservation pathways. I haven't published it yet. It's been in a couple of my my conference presentations. Um, And this was a phrase that kind of came to mind as I was doing research on the vaquita, um, the most endangered marine mammal in the world, uh, in the upper Gulf of California and Mexico. And I'll post some links to blog posts on that case if you want to learn more. Okay, before I go further, once again, I so appreciate any way in which you choose to engage with this podcast. Um, and I would absolutely love it if you could like it, share it, subscribe, write reviews, especially write comments on the Substack site and, and maybe get some discussions started. And if you have the means and feel so motivated, there is a donate button on the about page on Substack. And that is the end of this promotional message. Okay, back to Doc Jones. As a reminder, she is the founder and principal investigator of Baliena.org, which is a nonprofit organization in the Philippines that works to support the conservation of whales, dolphins, and their natural habitats. They do great work, and I will repost their link uh, in the transcript. And you can find more information about Joam in the episode 2 transcript. And this conversation is one of the many reasons I adore spending time with Joam when we overlap in time and space. Uh, this conversation is, is very real, very um, and a very accurate portrayal of a lot of the conversations we actually have in unrecorded real life. I'm just going to quickly provide some background information that might be useful for those of you who aren't as familiar with the small-scale fisheries or, or big marine animal, marine megafauna landscape, particularly in the Philippines. Bycatch is a phrase that's come up uh, on this podcast before, but I can't remember how well I defined it. So it's the non-targeted catch. It's the accidental capture of species in fishing gear. Bycatch can be, again, anything that you're not meaning to catch. So it can be other species of fish. It can be dolphins and whales and sea turtles and and, uh, sea lions, sea turtles, marine megafauna. And that includes elasmobranchs, sharks, and rays. And I have a lot more to say about bycatch in an upcoming episode and newsletter. Um, The precautionary principle. This is a really important idea that Joan brings up. It's one of the central operating principles of conservation, I would say. Basically, there's a lot of uncertainty when we're looking at at data in conservation, right? Like the species we're often trying to conserve are very inconveniently, and I might add inconsiderately, difficult to study. So we don't necessarily have precise or accurate numbers for how many of them there are, how many of them are being impacted by human activities um, in small-scale fisheries. It's also really hard to measure what they're doing because um, they're very dispersed. uh, And when marine megafauna, for example, in small-scale fisheries exist in areas that have limited infrastructure or resources for concerted research, 
Uh, there is a lot of, of scarcity of data. On the other hand, there is this real sense of crisis about losing biodiversity, and it is a huge loss. It's a significant loss to lose a species. To lose even a, a population or subpopulation of a species is, is, is a loss that you can never get back. And I think a lot of us in conservation have been trained to have kind of this urgent mindset that things have to happen and they have to happen now. And so the precautionary principle is basically like, okay, we might not have perfect information. Let's act in a way that's conservative on the side of if we're erring, it will be erring on the side of saving the species, even if it means some of our interventions might be um, unnecessary or might be too strong or stronger than needed, rather. I totally understand the merits of precautionary principle. I'm not saying it's not important. The problem is, is that the precaution is generally only applied on the side of the species and the conservationists. And it doesn't take into account the fact that these interventions can harm living, breathing people with rights. And so precaution also needs to be exercised in that direction as well. There's a responsibility that needs to come with exercising the precautionary principle for conservation. A related idea um, kind of going along in that direction would be environmental and social safeguards. Uh, basically, these are measures that organizations and projects in, in some cases need to put into place to show that they've thought about these possible negative impacts, about ways to avoid them or to mitigate them. Um, and that's something worth looking into if you're not familiar with those terms already. Joan refers to a community she's worked with in Bohol, which is a province and an island in the central Visayas in the Philippines, so kind of the central part of the country. She talks about mobula rays, um, basically a family of rays, rays mobulidae, and about gill rakers. So gill rakers are basically cartilaginous structures um, lining the gills or on the inside of the gills. Um, they can protect the gills, but also in, in, in rays, they've kind of evolved to strain plankton as well. It's kind of similar to baleen in, in baleen whales. Uh, they're also traded, uh, coveted for medicinal purposes, and this would kind of be analogous to the shark fin trade in that sense. And so this is where CITES comes in. So CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of wild fauna and flora, and it's, it's basically an international agreement to ensure that the survival of a species isn't threatened by trade in, in products derived from the, the harvest or exploitation of that species. And in 2017, all species of mobula rays were listed under CITES under Appendix 2. So it's really important to know the differences between the different appendices. So Appendix 1 is for the most endangered species. Uh, and so there's no trade allowed. There are some exceptions for non-commercial use, for example, for, for research. But that requires uh, the granting of a, of a permit. Appendix 2 is kind of a lower tier. So the species listed under Appendix 2, they're not necessarily threatened with impending extinction, but they might become threatened if trade in their products is not carefully uh, monitored and managed. 
So how the listing of these mobula rays under Appendix 2 of CITES affected fisheries management in the Philippines is something that Joan talks about. And a really important point is, is how this listing was interpreted, translated, and, and implemented under Philippine law. And there's definitely a question of what the burden of proof is and, and what the proper procedure should be. Joan also quickly references a mutual friend and colleague of ours who we admire and like very much, even though she focuses more maybe on fishy things and elasmobranch things than marine mammal things these days. You might well be familiar with her uh, from Twitter. And I actually have another episode featuring her coming up in the future. We've got some great representation from the Philippines in this podcast. Okay, someday I'll master the art of a succinct introduction, but that's not today. For now, let's listen to a clip from the song The Green Touch by Somo Twin, Zian Tet, and Min Min from Myanmar, and then dive in to this spicy conversation with Joan. I'd like to pivot now and talk about the second topic, which I know we've talked about, I don't know how many times. I think it's one of our favorite conversation topics when we get together. Um, <laughs> but it's this idea of when conservation harms local communities. So this kind of human collateral damage that I think conservationists have far too high a tolerance for. Um, and so I'd really love to, you know, hear you state at least briefly share like the examples in which you've noticed this and give a little bit of background on that. Yeah, first, I really like that that, that term, uh, human collateral damage, um, because, yeah, like you said, it's not really uh, always recognized, um, sadly, but I think it happens more often than a lot of people think, because partly, um, yes, scientists tend to think about only the species, and from my experience, I guess I could say that it was only when I started working on a species that involved fisheries mm-hmm. that I realized that, that they're so entwined that there's just no way you can um, do any work on a species that's been traditionally uh, hunted or caught without touching on um, the people. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So the the, I guess the best example in the Philippines, I would say, but I'm sure there are so many others. Um, is when yeah, when a species that was, that has been hunted for many for decades becomes, illegalized, basically, and, the scientist maybe unknowingly at the beginning, um, may have been. <laughs> just thinking, oh, it's Ill- it's illegal now, so you should stop hunting them. Um, but then 
the mistake I think that that happened here in the Philippines is when you tend to just want to work on your species, even though you've already realized that people are being affected. That for you to protect the species, you're basically taking away um, the livelihood of community. And not recognizing that is, or even trying to do something about it when the damage has already been done. So yeah, from our experience, yeah, specifically for the manta and the mobula race, yes, manta rays have been protected for a very long time, but then the mobula species was very recent. Um, there was a different movement because people who were working on the fisheries, monitoring that with the people, weren't really part of this other group that was advocating for the protection internationally. And I think, um, to give them the benefit of the doubt, they didn't also realize that it would suddenly just be affecting local policy. Mm. Because most, like the CITES, yes, we are signatory to CITES, but um, the normal procedure is that they would have to translate that into a national law for it to become effective and to implement with certain um, implementing rules and and regulations, but that didn't happen. So when they were able to advocate for the protection of all these species, it was automatically adapted into our fisheries code and was misinterpreted to say that it's going to be um, illegal unless you can prove otherwise. Um, when the law actually says, our fisheries code actually says the other way around, Mm. That it shouldn't be illegalized until you can say that what they're taking is actually more than the capacity. And so, and yeah, so people, the fishers were never included in any of these discussions. Um, they literally, basically, yes, they were warned by us <laughs> that it's happening out there. People are talking about this, that they're going to make it illegal. But no one from the government agency or the NGOs advocating for the protection went to talk to them. not a single one. And they were never invited to any of the meetings. Um, and so they didn't really, or they refused to realize how important it was for their income. And by the time that yeah the law was passed, um, it was just abruptly stopped. And these people, even until now, you know, um, lost a very huge chunk of their income from the fishery that was illegalized. And the things that were promised to them by the local government just never really happened. Like they were promised a new type of fishery, mm -hmm. um, more provisions for, uh, drying fish, et cetera, and catching other species, converting their boats, et cetera. That never happened. Um, and what I think the sad part in terms of conservation is that it not just affects, well, one, it doesn't really um, guarantee that the species is protected because there's still bycatch. Actually, the bycatch is a lot bigger than the targeted fishery. Um, 
because it, it is the type, mobulus are the type that gets caught in all these gillnets. Um, so you didn't really stop that. Mm -hmm. And you just basically put it underground. So at least before, when it was still legal and people were able, to, researchers were able to monitor it, and the fishers were very welcoming to researchers, now they will not only rep not report to you, but they will probably never trust a researcher again. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, that's the notion now that, oh, someone's coming here doing research, they're going to make it illegal soon enough. Because that's exactly what happened. And this is not the first time it happened. It happened yeah. before when with the whaling and the whale shark hunting, that's exactly what happened. Someone was doing the research, and then in the end, without the fault of the researcher, it was species uh, was protected and so they had to stop so mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's it definitely leaves a bad taste in the mouth of fishers and you lose the trust so all the years of um hard work getting their trust that's all gone yeah they'll never believe you anymore um because of that so it's it's not really good for conservation in general um, you lose the trust of the people. You lose the, how do you say that? Like the trust of people in science in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, it doesn't really guarantee that your species is protected. No one's going to yeah. report to you. Um, and everything's underground. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as, as you mentioned, I can, I can think of, other examples of this, and you, you know, I studied one in uh, in relation to the vaquita in in Mexico, but I've I've seen other examples, smatterings of other examples from from my other experiences in different countries, and I think I think it's common for conservation researchers and conservation organizations to treat it like it's a simple situation in like a lab setting. <laughs> instead of being in this intertwined web of the real world. And yeah. it's there's no simple, like, I'm saving the planet doing something good. You know, there's no simple checkbox. You know, you are operating in a realm where your actions can have very real, very significant impacts on real people. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the thing that, like, yeah, like, about those, like, the conservationists who were advocating for it. Like at first you could say that they didn't know because of course they wouldn't know because they're in Manila. <laughs> They've never met these people. They've never been on their beach. So they just have no idea what their actions are affecting all these people. And yeah. For them, they're comfortable there because that, it doesn't affect them at all. Right. They do get a lot of recognition. Um, Without them knowing, people are losing livelihoods and income with what they're doing. So, yeah, um, it kind of reminds me actually of of what you said about parachute science, in that there is a this disregard for a certain type of person's voice, right? A total disregard for their rights and their dignity. And it doesn't have to be malicious. It could be ignorance, but it still does harm all the same. Yeah. 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 
So in this situation um, with the the mobulids, um, how once it became more clear that the communities were facing these substantial impacts, how did the conservationists respond or how did the conservationists pushing for this very strict protection respond? Nothing. Well, okay, I'll say. <laughs> they did try once to reach out. Um, I just can't, the thing is, I, I can't verify it because I didn't see it. But mm-hmm. they said they went to the village or at least to the municipality and had a meeting with them. But I wasn't there when they had that meeting. And when I was asking the people, like, what did you talk about? They obviously didn't really understand what they were there for. And they said that actually not a lot of them, not a lot of the fishers who were directly affected were actually at the meeting. And then I only saw like um, an attendance sheet. You know how we love attendance sheets. Um, (laughs) And the people listed there were not even the people who were actually fishing for months. Okay. It's like, like, um, how do you say that? Not fake. I don't know the word for it. The English word for it, but it's just like just to show that we went and mm-hmm. tried to reach out, but we, they didn't really do the effort. But it was just to say that they did something, and that was it. It's just checking. Uh, oh, sorry, there was another. Yeah, and yeah, literally just to say, okay, we did that once, and mm-hmm. then there was also uh, what they called like a shark summit where they invited one person to go there and luckily that one person was the more outspoken one he was actually a, a counselor at that time mm-hmm. um but still it's like just seeing their reaction to what he was saying it was just like it just went one ear and out the other I mm-hmm. like, okay okay they can say that oh this guy came and we let him speak but they didn't really do anything Mm. about it for them um yeah i that's another pet peeve is an understatement is people's very limited understanding of what like inclusion and participation actually are it doesn't mean that you let someone speak at your meeting you know it means that you actually paid attention to what they said and, and integrated it um so <laughs> i mean this is just all I I like to try to extend the benefit of the doubt to all parties, but I don't understand listening to someone telling you like in the same room that something has so radically affected their life and and not really respecting that and and doing better because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's not just and this is okay. It's it's going to sound bad, but (laughs) they don't even listen to me. It's like when I speak at the conference with the the people who advocated for it, it's like, you know, like, yeah, they list, they're looking at you, but they're not really listening. They will not acknowledge that what you said is right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if they don't believe me, how much do they, would they believe them? Right. It's like that. It's just, it's insane. So to me, it's insane. And like, I'm not saying all of them, like, for example, of course, Jean's 
Jean's there and I feel like only Jean is listening to me. <laughs> but everyone else is like, okay, okay, okay. And that's it. Yeah. So the annoying bitch lady talking about the pictures in, in Bohol. But that's just about it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate and it, it really, like you said, it, it harms conservation long term because the communities are the ones who are there all the time on the ground. Um, if, if you don't engage them, you really have have nothing long term, especially if it's in a situation where you don't have the infrastructure for these super long term sustained projects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, like I said, it doesn't really help the species anyway. Like, yeah. If you think it's nice on paper, <laughs> but if you actually look and find out, okay, did it stop the dying of mobulus? Yeah. And I think, I think it also speaks to kind of a, a very narrow view of the overall conservation of the species and the social ecological context in which its conservation has to take place. You know, if you just focus on one side and you're like, we're, we're taking this step that we believe will reduce an impact without really understanding where are all the other impacts coming from, I catch is really hard to deal with. I understand why it's easier to just stop people from fishing for it and from targeting it. it it's like you said, it looks good on paper. You can maybe prove more that you've done that. Whereas bycatch is, you know, probably the most frustrating problem I've come across. Yes. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's not really rooted in, in any real, I think, genuine effort that's going to do any good for the species. Yeah. And if someone's going to audit you and talk to the people, they're going to not going to say anything good about you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is, you know, this is what I found in the case of the vaquita. That's where I, I described it as counterproductive conservation pathways. Like it's not only not doing anything productive, but it's actually hindering future productive work in conservation. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you think this situation could have been handled better? Obviously, including fishers, the fishing communities from the beginning. Um, any other key steps in there? I think, um, and this is something that I actually talked about with the fishers, mm -hmm. and they were open with, about the idea. Um, it's regulating it, not completely um, illegalizing it, but instead, by looking at the data, we did have some data on the fisheries with the help of the locals, obviously, that we could tell when is the peak of the season where they would see a lot of pregnant animals. Mm -hmm. Then they could just say, okay, from the month of November till December, you have to pause. You cannot hunt or yeah, fish for mobulus during that time because it's like this. And they understand that. Mm -hmm. Or the other and or you could limit the number of boats. There were only 15 during that. And like I said, it that was that's also the mistake that a lot of the advocates and conservationists were citing is that they kept 
using the example of Sri Lanka, wherein fishers for mobulas and mantas were going out for days and stocking up mm. because they have bigger boats that would go out on long fishing trips. That's not the case in Bohol. They would go every day and come back because they don't have big boats. And the idea there is they preferred fresh uh, rather than the whole. And then, yeah, the, the also difference there is, yes, the gill rakers were uh, more expensive than the meat, but the locals really were more after the meat. Hmm. The gill rakers is a recent plus. Mm-hmm. Um, the meat was sold locally. So they wanted that and that they wanted fresh. So that was a main factor. So with that alone, you're already limiting how much they could catch per day. So by limiting the number of boats, no new boats can enter the industry. 15, we stick to the 15. If one of the boats gets destroyed for some reason, then maybe you can consider adding a new one, but you can't. Normally you stick to 15. That was another suggestion. So you can do that together, limiting the season when they can catch and then limiting the number of boats who can get involved in the industry. They were very open to that idea mm-hmm. instead of just completely telling them stop right now. And yeah, so I think if that was considered, that would have worked so much better for both parties because yes, you're, yes, you're still catching some of them, but at least you're slowly trying to limit, okay, we're at least we're protecting the pregnant one. Right. Or during the the breeding season. And then, yeah, you can't get any bigger in terms of the industry. So limited to only 15. Um, and at the same time, they will still allow you to get data from them. Yeah. And you can further study, okay, are they really catching more than they should? Because even that scientists couldn't answer because we didn't have enough information actually say that but yes i know i know people are saying oh precautionary principle but yeah these are lives of people we're talking about and it's not that easy just to say them oh but we're just trying to be safe here there's being safe for the species but what about that yeah so they should he's been given um more time um to consider alternatives if that's even possible but honestly it's for a community of fisher folks, fishing is their life. And it's very important for them, not just for money, but it's just the way they live. So, Yes, exactly. And I think conservation really loses out on really potentially very powerful allies when they alienate communities like that. Well, thanks, Joan. I mean, that was every time you talk about this example, I, I feel like I gain more insights. <laughs> um, I think it's it's a kind of conversation that more conservationists need to be having among themselves, like very honestly, and, and in a way that in, in a way in which they're willing to admit mistakes and, and kind of forward looking to how they can improve what they're doing. All right, folks, that's it for this conversation with Joan. I decided not to 
once again splice our thank yous and goodbyes, um, which I already used in episode two. I thought it'd be a little weird to use them again for this episode, um, although I'm sure no one would be even keeping track. Uh, On a related note, I want to get you intrigued and excited for a future episode, which will be toward the end of this season um, in late July, where I will be taking answers that every one of the the folks I've interviewed um, have given me to to three kind of rapid-fire questions. I give them at the end of each conversation. And uh, these are questions that I think, and answers that are really thought-provoking. They really were a nice way to end each conversation. And I thought it would be kind of interesting to present them all uh, in one episode. Uh, I realize now that that's going to be a lot of editing, but uh, it'll be worth it. So thank you again, Maraming Lama, to Doc Jom, and thank you to all of you listening. Take care. ยาลาเฮตุกปาจีเยสิงโคดานเวนาสวนเลตุปยองเวอาผุสินโลเลเซลันเนลาปาจีเยกงโมซองเนตุลาเวไหนเชิญลงไปอ่ะเบยาเรมาตุ๊ดทะเลกุ๊ดเชวาเรมะมีบุเฮเซตินดาโดเนอุซอเทลไลปาเนอาลองเพมาโลตุ กาเวนายมาเดปาวอจินลัปปาลาโบเยตะลันโลกูมาเลตะปาวายเมโยสัตตอปาโบเลตะปาวายเตยาเรมิตินายมาเซเมนโลนาไทเมนตุจิเลต
เมตตาในบาสิเมลงตาใจเมตตาจีเลบาวจินลาปาลาโบยิลลาลูกูบาลิตบาวายิมยูสัตตาปาโบเลตบาวายเตยาเรเมตตาในบาสิเมลงตา